Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. In the 2005 film adaptation of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a race of hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings get so fed up with the constant bickering about the meaning of life that they build a supercomputer named Deep Thought uh, to calculate the answer for them. The computer instructs them to return in seven and a half million years when it's finished running its program, and they do only to be informed that the answer to the ultimate question of life and the universe and everything is 42. You don't get it. Okay, a couple. In the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon seeks an answer to the same question, what is the ultimate meaning of life? And so far, one chapter into his search, one chapter into our study of this book, Solomon has been about as successful as deep thought in answering it. Last week in chapter 1, Solomon looked for meaning in work, but concluded none of our work makes any lasting eternal difference. The earth is going to outlive us all, and so next he turns to nature, concluded that it too is just as purposeless. The sun just goes in circles, so too the wind, the water, nothing ever seems to accomplish anything nature. So he turns to knowledge, but concluded that the thirst for knowledge always left him thirsty. You'll never know enough. So he tried progress and leaving a legacy and wisdom and ultimately concluded that all of it, everything is meaningless, vain, futile. It's hevel. It's hevel, this Hebrew word that we spent a lot of our time unpacking last Sunday for smoke, mist, breath, vapor. Life is, is shaky. It's not solid because it's so fleeting. It's so temporary. You're here today, you blink, and you're going to be gone tomorrow. It's all heaven, at least here under the sun. And that is Solomon's point. His purpose in taking us on this journey is that he wants to expose the eternal emptiness of all the ideas, all the idols here on earth that we are prone to try and attach ultimate meaning to. Now, this is going to be a theme this morning and all, all throughout Ecclesiastes. It's not that they're bad things, work, creation, knowledge, wisdom. The, the four things we're going to examine this morning, they're not bad things, they're good things. But an idol is when a good thing becomes a God thing. It's when it becomes your ultimate thing. And Here is Solomon on his deathbed trying to help us learn from his own, from his mistakes. He's saying, let me save you all the hevel. Don't be so stubborn that you have to learn it the hard way. Take it from me. Learn from my failed example. Listen, I tried filling my heart with all those other idols too. And you know what I discovered? Mick Jagger sang it best. I can't get no banana satisfaction, right? None of it is going to satisfy you. 
won't fulfill you, at least not ultimately. It may distract you and may keep you occupied for a time, but at the end of the day, or at least by the end of your life, you're going to discover that nothing under the sun can fill that God-shaped void in your heart because God put it there to be filled with him and him only. So once you've tried everything else under the sun, under the S-U-N, maybe it's time to give the sun, S-O-N, Jesus, a try. Quit looking horizontally for your meaning and purpose and turn your eyes heavenward. Ecclesiastes is really just one long exposition of the Apostle Paul's Famous words from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, that if we have hope in this life only, under the sun only, then we are to be pitied. Solomon says, let's just run a thought experiment for 11 and a half chapters, and let's just assume that this life here under the sun is all there is to our existence as humans, And let's just see how much meaning we can wring out of it. And the answer so far, after one chapter, is not very much. Solomon is not a quitter. He's not done trying. This morning he's going to continue his quest for meaning by assessing four possible additional answers. The first two are new, at least as new as anything under the sun can be. There's nothing new under the sun. But his second two answers to this question are actually repeated from last chapter. One, remember, repetition in in the Hebrew language conveys emphasis. But he's going to offer us some new reasons, at least, why none of these vain pursuits he keeps coming back to and trying over and over again can bring us any true meaning and satisfaction. And here's how I want to try and group all four of them together, the common thread here, and props to Pastor Thad and Pastor Danny Aiken for helping me to, to see this in the text. It's the American dream. The American dream is Hevel. What is the American dream? It is the self-evident truth that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with the unalienable rights to what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of heaven. That's it. You have the right. As a matter of fact, our society downright encourages you to pursue all the heaven your heart desires. If you desire it, you deserve it. And typically, that hevel tends to fall into one of these four categories. So let's examine each in turn this morning. Would you stand with me, again, as you're able, for the reading of God's Word from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I'll be reading from the ESV, words on the screen down front. But we'd love to give you a Bible. If you don't have your own Bible this morning, it's one of the few things that's not hevel. Grass withers, flowers fade. God's Word endures forever. So we've got God's Word at uh, the info bar for you. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under the sun, uh, under heaven during the few days of their life. 
I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil, the pleasure. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. And I said in my heart, what happens to the fool? What happened to me also? Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and is striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. And so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone else who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. Bet you thought he was going to say vanity. It's from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after when. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. As we submit ourselves now under its authority, we pray, Holy Spirit, would you come? uh, Open blind eyes to see, unstop deaf ears to hear. Open hearts to experience Jesus this morning in your eternal word. Would you make the word of life, Jesus, manifest, evident, obvious, personal to us in these words of life from your scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, interestingly, uh, there's often, I think, something of a chronology here to these four stages of the American dream. So what do most of us try first in our early years of life and our pursuit of happiness? We turn to pleasure, don't we? That's where Solomon starts, verse 1 and 2. Our first 20 to 25 years or so of life were all basically hedonists. My two-and-a-half-year-old son, he lives popsicle to popsicle. My my six-and-a-half-year-old daughter, she lives soccer game to soccer game, goal to goal. Your 12-year-old middle schooler lives for his Minecraft. Your 17-year-old daughter lives for her boyfriend. Your 21-year-old college kid lives to party. We live for fun. But eventually, and sadly, it takes some of us longer than others to realize it. There's nothing sadder than... Someone in their 50s still dressed like someone in their 20s still partying at the club like someone in their 20s. Nothing sadder. But eventually, we're all going to discover that whoopee is Hevel. Now, let me just address two things, get out in front of two things here. First, yes, you can prepare yourself for a W alliteration this morning. Uh, But secondly, no, whoopee does not just mean sex. I'm sure that's where some of your minds immediately went, sinners, Uh, and we will get there, but um, uh, according to dictionary.com, to make whoopee technically just means to engage in uproarious merrymaking or revelry. It's partying. It's partying. And, and to prove that uh, whoopee, I, I brought my whoopee cushion socks this morning. I wore those. Um, whoopee has different meanings. Uproarious merrymaking, it's partying. And that's where Solomon starts here in verse 1. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, with whoopee. Enjoy yourself. And then he tries three specific pleasures here in his pursuit of happiness. We'll continue with the W theme. It's wit. Wine and women. Wit, wine, and women. And as we work our way through each of these hevels that Solomon's going to examine, he's also going to identify for us the problem with each of them. And so he starts in verse 2 with laughter, wit. And he concludes very quickly that it is mad. Now, interestingly, the word for madness here in Hebrew doesn't refer to being out of one's mind, but rather to something sinful. Because the only things worth laughing at in this fallen world of ours 
are the very things we're not supposed to be laughing at. That's what makes them funny. Whether that's slapstick humor, you're laughing at someone else's misfortune, falling down, getting hit between the legs with a baseball bat, uh, or whether it's sarcasm, laughing at some cutting, ironic taunt that probably shouldn't be said, or just plain laughing at the hevel of everyday life and how heveled up everything under the sun is. Uh, Our son, Elijah, had us rolling uh, yesterday for, you know, he just was going on and on, talking more than ever in his life, 15 minutes about his baptism and about how all of you were clapping for him and about how now he eats the church crackers. He's two years old. This, none of this is true. We don't, we don't do that here at West Hills. We don't do infant baptism. So he was, he was it's madness. He was actually lying, though. It was, it was sinful, uh, what he was doing, but it was hilarious. Uh, it was just as funny and ridiculous, though, as the idea of finding true fulfillment in humor and laughter. It's just, that's madness. And so uh, Solomon leaves the comedy club and he heads to the bar. He says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine next. Now some commentators think that Solomon's clarification here, that his heart was still guiding him with wisdom, suggests that he was drinking responsibly, uh, that he was not frat boy partying, but rather this was more of a fancy cocktail hour at the country club kind of party. He became a wine connoisseur, an expert on the finer things in life, finer pleasures. Whether his quest was to sip the finest wine or to ride the longest bender, the result for Solomon was the same either way. Verse 3, it was folly. So laughter is madness, wine is folly. Foolishness, he says of this pleasure in verse 2, what use is it? He says, whether you're face down in the toilet or you're flushing your money down it because you just spent $1,000 on a bottle of wine that you're going to be able to enjoy for all of, you know, half an hour that it takes you to drink it. Either way, it's hevel. It's useless. What good is it? So Solomon leaves the bar too, and now he heads to the brothel. Wit, wine, women. We skip down to verse 8b now where Solomon says, I got singers, both men and women, He didn't have Spotify back then, but Solomon didn't need it. He just bought the whole band. Private concerts whenever he wanted. Needs some good driving music. And T. Swift just hops right up in the chariot with him. Working out. Hey, Yeezy, come spit some beats for me, some bars. Trying to set the mood. Solomon just lit some candles. Called John Legend. Summoned him right up into his private chambers to serenade his many concubines, verse 8. Now, some of your Bibles have a footnote admitting here that we don't actually know what this Hebrew word means. It could be concubines. Some translations have musical instruments. doesn't really matter too much because we know that Solomon had plenty of both, and he tried plenty of both to fill his heart, both music and mating, but let's just stick with the concubines translation for a minute. Concubine is basically a sex slave. Because 1 Kings 11.3 tells us that Solomon had 300 of them, and that was in addition to his 700 wives. If you can do the math, that means Solomon slept with a different woman every night for almost three years. Now, how do you, I ask you, how do you end up with a thousand women in your harem? It's the same way you end up with a thousand bottles of wine in your cellar. It's the same way you end up with a thousand followers on your Instagram page. Or a thousand kills in Elden Ring. 
I guess that's the most popular video game right now. Whether your vice is sex or alcohol or social media or video games or porn or food, drugs, nicotine, gambling, applause, they all function in the same way. They give you a temporary hit of dopamine, the so-called happiness hormone, but when it wears off, not only does the come down actually leave you feeling lower than before, it actually takes more of the same stimulus the next time to achieve the same level of euphoria as before. Now you need harder porn. You need harder drugs. You need a harder level to beat on the video game. Harder applause to get the same hit of dopamine, of happiness. It's just basic brain chemistry. And Solomon says, it's Hevel. It's a fool's game. Verse 11, it's a striving after the win. You will never catch the win. You'll never You'll never grab that happiness. The thousandth woman won't make you any happier than the first one did. As a matter of fact, you'll be less happy after number 1,000. You'll feel more empty. I had a student at Culver, super popular, likable guy, who started attending our youth group because he was trying to get with one of my female student leaders, probably because he had already been with all the non-Christian girls on campus, so he needed a challenge, higher dopamine threshold. But he came to me one night about a month in after youth group and he confessed, Mr. D, I'll be honest. He said, I only came to youth group for this girl. I said, I know, Max. He said, but I want you to know, since I've been coming, I've really, I've really been listening, paying attention. And I've, I've even started praying. And I'm starting to realize that I do need God in my life. But he said, the problem is, I also love to party. I live for the weekend. 17 years old, he said, I'll be honest, I love to drink, to get high, and to have sex. He said, and and if giving my life to Jesus means I have to give those things up, I just don't think I'm interested in it, at least not right now. And I looked at him, and I thanked him for his honesty, And I gave him probably the most controversial youth pastor advice ever. I said, well, Max, maybe next weekend you should go out and party twice as hard, ten times as hard, Friday and Saturday night, get as drunk as possible, as high as possible, have as much sex as possible, and then come back here again on Sunday night for youth group, for worship, for Bible study, for prayer, for fellowship. And then lay down in bed Sunday night and decide which of them left you feeling more fulfilled, less empty. Then, by the way, I went out and found my female student leader and warned her to stay away from him. (laughs) Friends, wit, wine, women, whoopee, it will never leave you satisfied. If it could then of all people, Solomon would have been fulfilled. 1 Kings 4 says he threw epic parties for 30,000 people every single day. His life was a constant party, but it was never enough. You will always need more. And afterward, you'll always be left feeling emptier than before. So number two, once our prefrontal cortex finishes developing, we've sown our wild oats, we've sobered up, and we finally settled down, where does society tell us to look next for, lo- for happiness? It's to wealth. To wealth, money, 
and all the material pleasures that it can afford us, the comforts. Write this down. Let me give you sort of a, a, a motto with each of these, these four. Uh, so go back to bullet point number one and write in, in your bulletins, in your, your Ecclesiastes journals, if the pursuit of Whoopi said, what I experience will fulfill me. It's all about what I, I can experience. Then now number two, write, the pursuit of wealth says, what I own will fulfill me. Maybe what I own can bring me fulfillment. But Solomon's conclusion here is just as clear as with Whoopi. Wealth is hevel. All the money in the world cannot buy you happiness. And once again, if anyone should know, it was Solomon. I found a website, wealthresult.com, that ranks Solomon as the number one richest man to ever walk the planet by a landslide. Second Chronicles 9 tells us he was raking in 23 tons of gold every year, and he reigned for 40 years. You can do the math, adjusted for inflation, that means... Solomon's net worth was somewhere in the ballpark of $2 trillion today, U.S. currency. Solomon was the only trillionaire ever. No one else even comes close. The Bible says Israel was so affluent during his reign that people didn't even bother bending over to pick silver up off the ground. They were blowing their noses with Benjamins. And so Solomon remembers, verse 4, I made great works. I built houses, plural, houses, we know about his palace in Jerusalem. I'm sure he had a couple beach homes, summer homes on the coast, Mediterranean, maybe a few winter homes too, private ski chalet up north on Mount Hermon. He continues, I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Danny Aiken notes here, interestingly, this phrase, every kind of fruit tree in them, is used verbatim three times in the creation account of Genesis. So literally, Solomon was trying to create a new Garden of Eden. But all the money in the world can't buy our way back to paradise. Verse 6, I made myself pools. I bought myself slaves. I had lots of herds and flocks, more than anyone before me. I had more silver and gold too. By the way, there is one word that you may have noticed Solomon has repeated in every single verse so far. All 11 verses of the first two bullet points. Did you catch it? What word? I, the word I, and in nine of the verses, he repeats the words my or for myself. Uh, one pastor whose sermon on Ecclesiastes 2 I watched this week in preparation titled his message, Me, Myself, and I. It's appropriate. That really gets at the heart of it here for Solomon. It's all about him. It's what the pursuit of pleasure is. How can I make me happy? Solomon is after his kingdom here, not God's. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. You got to pick. But here's, here's what he said. He said, if you seek first the kingdom of God, not your kingdom, but God's and his righteousness, Jesus promises, I'm going to throw in the rest of it as a cherry on top, as a bonus. And that's the thing. Money, like so many of the pleasures from point number one, comedy, alcohol, sex, they're not evil in and of themselves. But the Bible warns us that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So too is the love of wit or wine or women. The love of any pleasure that replaces God as the driving love, the supreme love of our hearts. Idolatry is when we fall in love with a gift, and we forget all about the giver. 
James reminds us that every good gift comes down from our Father above. Wine, sex, pleasure. These things are good gifts from God. And so Paul declares that everything, 1 Timothy 4, everything created by God is good and is to be received with thanksgiving. That's the, the, the problem. The problem is that so many of us are like that kid on Christmas who, who were so eager, we rip open our presents and we immediately get so infatuated with our shiny new toys that we forget all about the loving parent who bought them, who gave them. We're so busy playing, we become so self-absorbed I, me, I, my, me, myself, and I, that we don't even stop to say thank you, much less to worship him for it. And that highlights two of the great dangers here with wealth. If we're not careful, here's what wealth will do. We can easily become spoiled and self-sufficient. We no longer want for anything, nor do we need anyone. Solomon alludes to both of these dangers in verses 9 and 10 here. He says, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. I was totally self-sufficient. I didn't need any of y'all. No one could touch me. And then he says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. He, he just admits, I was spoiled rotten. Spoiled, selfish, self-sufficient. That's a dangerous place to be. But here's the thing. Here's a third danger to add to it. Money, sex, booze, any dopamine fix, it really can bring you happiness. That's the danger, at least in the short term. As Solomon admits in verse 10, he says, my heart found pleasure. Like the pleasure I was seeking, I found it in my toil. All that work that I put into building my palaces, my gardens, my pools, it really did pay off. Like it, it, it made me happy. It brought me pleasure at least for a little while. Friends, you, you can only shove money and stuff into that God-shaped void for so long before you wake up one day and you realize, verse 11, the end, it's all hevel. The palaces, the servants, your favorite stuff, your prized top-of-the-line espresso maker that you, you love to wake up to every morning, my 2019 sweet new Honda Odyssey. I, I told, when I told my D group about it a couple weeks back, Jack, Jack, Jack Gentile, 25-year-old, he, he was so jealous. I am living his 25-year-old dream right now in, in my certified pre-owned minivan. At the end of the day, it's all hevel. It's all going to rust and then get burned up when Jesus returns. So ultimately, Solomon concluded in verse 11 that there was nothing to be gained under the sun. To be gained. Isn't that fascinating, that word he says, what does it profit a man? That was chapter 1. What does it profit you? He says you can't actually gain any of it. You think you own your possessions, but really they own you. And the reason you can't gain them, you can't truly acquire them, you can't actually own anything in any sort of ultimate sense is that you can't keep it. You can't take it with you when you die. He's going to emphasize this even more in points three and four in just a minute. But he hints at it here too, that you can build stuff and you can buy stuff, but you can't keep stuff. Because even if it doesn't break down on you or get stolen first, 
you got to leave it all behind when you die. Can't take it with you. As Cicely Tyson put it so well, you'll never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Some of you need to tweet that out. Some of your friends need to hear that and come to grips this week with the reality of the, the entire way, their entire approach to life on the hamster wheel. Make more, make more, accumulate more. You can't, you'll never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You can't take it with you. So number three, the pursuit of wealth may occupy us into midlife, up until your midlife crisis maybe, at which time fortunately many of us do eventually wake up to the reality of the heaviness of it all, of trying to keep up with the Joneses, and we finally turn elsewhere for meaning. Perhaps now to the pursuit of wisdom. Uh, a noble pursuit. If what I experienced couldn't fulfill me, and neither could what I owned, then maybe what I understand will finally set me free from all this hevel. I've just been looking for love and life in all the wrong places. Maybe I just need to learn to live rightly, to live wisely. And at first, wisdom seems pretty promising. Solomon starts in verse 12. The man who comes after the king can only do what has already been done. He's recognizing how foolish he was to try and find happiness in his building projects. Solomon realizes, I'm following the footsteps of my father, the great King David. I might have built a palace, a temple. My father built the whole kingdom. I can't outbuild him. That's why when God granted Solomon just one wish in 1 Kings chapter 3, what did he asked for? Wisdom. He's finally waking up to the reality of it. Because verse 13, there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. There it is. Again, profit, more gain. Solomon says there's no gain in whoopee or wealth. But there is in wisdom. Not, it's not as fleeting and as unstable as those other pursuits. As far as foundations go, wisdom is a pretty good one to build your life on. Verse 13b, it's like light. Verse 14, the wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. We're all on this crazy journey called life, full of twists and turns, especially in a world full of heaven, fallen world. He says the fool is stumbling all over the place. Stumbling his way through life, but wisdom is like a light that helps us navigate the way well. It's a good thing. Wisdom seems promising until verse 14b, he drops the hammer. And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to us all, the wise and the foolish alike. And what is that same event? It's almost like the thought is so painful, Solomon can't even bring himself to say the word. Verse 15, I said in my heart, what happens to the fool, this event that's going to happen, it will happen to me also. And what's going to happen? He can't bring himself to say it yet. Verse 16, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Why? Why not? He still can't go there until finally, end of verse 16, he can't hold his despair in any longer, and it burst out, oh, how the wise dies, just like the fool. Death. If one person stumbles his way down the path of life, while the other navigates it well, beautifully, only to discover 
that both paths, both, both of them arrive at the exact same final destination, death, then what good was wisdom in the first place? As Solomon ponders in verse 15, why then have I been so very wise? Why waste the time? What's the point? Death is the great equalizer. The same event happens to us all. The story is told of Alexander the Great, who conquered half the world, known at the time, by the way, when, who one day found his friend, the famous philosopher Diogenes, out in the field looking intently at a pile of bones. When Alexander asked him what he was doing, Diogenes replied, I am searching for the bones of your, your great father, the, the king, Philip, but I cannot seem to distinguish them from the bones of the slaves. The rich and the poor, the wise and the fool, death comes for us all. And so Solomon concludes in verse 17, probably, this is probably his low point, this is like, just to prepare you, low point, all of the book of Ecclesiastes here. So I hated life. The palaces and the concubines can only distract you for so long before eventually you take a peek up ahead at what's coming down the path where all this life is inevitably leading you. You realize it all ends for all of us in a giant cliff and no amount of whoopee or wealth or even wisdom can change any of it. And Solomon says that's enough to make anyone hate life. The wisest, wealthiest, whoopiest, the, the most privileged among us in life. It's enough to make you hate your life. He says it's grievous. It causes grief, great sorrow. Life is characterized by great pain and suffering. It's extremely or shockingly wicked, cruel, brutal, atrocious. It's grievous. Verse 17. It's hevel. The great Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy contemplated, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Verse 18 now. We're not even at the, lo the lowest. We've got one more. Number four. Solomon tried whoopee, left him empty. He tried wealth, it left him wanting still more. He tried wisdom, finally got his life on the right track, cleaned up his act, woke up one day, realized three-quarters of his life was behind him. He's a whole lot closer to that cliff now than he was. So where do you turn next? Solomon tries work last. He tries work. He employed his wisdom, verse 19. I used wisdom and toiled to leave my mark on the world. I'm going to leave a piece of me that will outlive me. He's desperately grasping it meaning in what he can build, what I can own, what I can experience, what I can understand, what I can build and leave behind. But before he even begins, verse 18, Solomon is already just as frustrated and depressed. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun for three reasons, quickly. You can't keep it. You can't protect it, and you can't even enjoy it like you're supposed to. Can't keep it, can't protect it, can't even enjoy it, your work. First, verse 18, you can't keep it. He says, I'm just going to die and leave everything that I built, all my palaces, all my life's work, my entire client portfolio, my entire career, punching in at the office, 
my legacy, my ministry, I'm going to leave it all to the man who will come after me. You can't take it with you. Second, what's worse, verse 19, you can't protect it. You don't know who you're leaving it to. Who knows whether my successor will be wise or a fool. I spent five years of my life in Culver, Indiana, building a ministry up from nothing to 60-something students involved in our youth group, Christian community on campus. The first time the school's 150-year history, only to have the school handed off to some deadbeat who ran the entire thing into the ground within 18 months of me moving away. Solomon left everything, all his riches, his kingdom, at the height of Israel's splendor, all of it, to his son Rehoboam. And within a matter of months, Rehoboam had lost ten-twelfths of his father's kingdom. Third, and worst of all, maybe, even while you're still alive, verse 23, you can't fully enjoy your work, not like you were created to. Remember, work was supposed to be good. It's a gift from God. God himself worked, Genesis 1, to create the universe. And then God gave Adam good work to do, Genesis 2, in the garden to cultivate it and, and, and till it. Even before the fall, it was a good gift from God, work. But in the fall, in the fall, Genesis 3, now the ground gets cursed with thorns and thistles, and now post-fall, God says our work is going to involve pain and sweat. In Solomon's estimation, he says work is now characterized by three things, sadness, frustration, and restlessness. He says, verse 23, all man's days are full of sorrow, sadness. His work is a vexation, frustration. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. It's restless. You're on the hamster wheel all the time. I'll, I'll, I'll confess, I get a little depressed pretty much every single Sunday afternoon. When I consider how many hours, how much work I pour into every one of these sermons that I will never preach ever again. 45 minutes later, it's done. And a third of the church isn't even here to hear. They don't even show up. And those of you who do, guess what? You'll be lucky to remember how much of it. A third? No way. A year from now, how much of this sermon will you remember? 10%? Maybe? I mean, if you're really great memory and really commit it to heart this morning, that's hevel. That's frustrating to me. Uh, my work is a vexation. Sometimes it keeps me up at night. Even in the night, my heart does not rest. And I love my job. Most of y'all don't even like your jobs, probably. I love my job, and it's sorrowful, frustrating, and restless. Okay, so where does that leave us? We got five minutes to redeem this. If I can't be fulfilled by what I experience, if I can't be fulfilled by what I own, if I can't be fulfilled by what I understand, or even what I build, leave behind. Solomon is going to leave us here with the one thing that can truly fulfill us. Verses 24 through, 20, through 26 of chapter 2 are the first positive note in the entire opening two chapters of Ecclesiastes. In fact, they are probably the, the most positive. We went from the low point in verse 17 to now the most positive we're going to get until chapter 12 at the very end. Of, of our series, okay? So you need to soak it up right now. 
soak it up. Philip Ryken calls these verses an oasis of optimism in a wilderness of despair. Right? And what is it? What is the answer to the ultimate question of the meaning of life, the universe, and everything? Number five, it's worship. It's worship. Only worship is not heaven. The word worship literally means to assign worth. Solomon discovers here that true contentment and joy under the sun comes only from assigning worth, supreme worth to God, who alone deserves it, who alone is above the sun, right? He's the only thing not under the sun. That's why everything else is hevel under the sun, because the only thing worth assigning value to is above the sun, created the sun. And then, then and only then, when we assign God supreme worth, will we find that all other things, the lesser things, the created things, the gifts, find their worth in him, find their worth from him. The paradox of this life, friends, is you try and find meaning in anything other than God, and it will prove meaningless. But find your meaning and worth supremely in God, and everything else suddenly becomes meaningful as well. Notice what brings Solomon joy here in verses 24 through 26. He embraces the very same activities that he had previously rejected as failing to bring him any meaning. It's work, food, drink. Previously, they couldn't satisfy his soul, but now he's eating, drinking, finding enjoyment in his toil. Verse 24, what makes the difference? I'll tell you, God makes the difference. He says it's from the hand of God. Once I, I, I recognize these are gifts supposed to point me to the giver, that makes all the difference. God makes all the difference. According to verse 25, no one can find any true joy in anything apart from him. It is the difference between pursuing pleasure and wealth and wisdom and work under the sun, S-U-N, versus pursuing pleasure and wisdom and work under the sun. Jesus. Verse 26, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom. He's the giver of all good gifts and knowledge and joy to be enjoyed, to point us to him, the giver, and to a life of gratitude. What's the number one predictor of happiness? Even in secular social studies, surveys, sociologists will tell you the number one predictor of happiness, you want to pursue happiness? Even under the sun in this life, you know the number one predictor? It's gratitude. The person who is the most grateful is the most happy. Exactly, because it's supposed to point us to the giver. But to the sinner, God has given the business of gathering and collecting and accumulating only to give it to one who pleases God. Why? Because we know ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth, the Bible declares that those of us who are united by faith with Christ says all things will be ours. We're going to reign as kings and queens, princes and princesses in God's heavenly kingdom forever. All things are going to be ours. We're, again, seek him first, his kingdom. You get the rest thrown in. It's a bonus. 
but you won't even care about it then. You won't care about it because you'll be worshiping God face to face. So the rest of this stuff will still be meaningless compared to him. We'll end with this. I love this reminder from commentator Danny Aiken. This is great. He says, Solomon's life reminds us of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. So many people think that the prodigal son's sin was partying too much. And, and then he came to his senses and wanted to leave his party days behind. He says, but we often forget that the story doesn't just begin with partying. It ends with partying too. Yes, there is a party in a far country that leaves the sun broken and empty. But there's also an epic party when he gets back home. And the difference is the son cannot enjoy the party rightly until he is satisfied in his father's love. How about you this morning? Are you satisfied in your father's love? Then and only then will you be truly fulfilled and find joy in any of the other lesser pursuits of life.